So faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And now please turn to Hebrews 11, verse 23. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. Let's pray. Father God, we just so humbly come before you this morning. We, we just want to rest at your feet, Father. We just uh, want to hear from you, Father. We ask that your Holy Spirit would fill this sanctuary, that your Holy Spirit, Father, would fill each one of us, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts, soften them to receive your word, Father, that we might be changed, that we might be drawn closer to you. Father, I pray that all of I say this morning would be glorifying to you. We give this time to you, Father. We thank you and we praise your holy name. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the story of Moses is told in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses was the author of those five books, which are known to the Jews as the Torah. Now, we could spend a year studying these texts. And if you ask any Jewish person who the most important figure in the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, who is the most important figure, probably 99 out of 100 would answer Moses. Every Christian and likely most non-Christians are familiar with Moses and the Exodus story. It is truly a remarkable story of humility and leadership and faithfulness and trust and courage and God's faithfulness to keep his promises. So for our purposes of considering the heroes of the faith, today and next Sunday, we will be looking at Moses. Moses confronted Pharaoh, and he led the Israelites out of Egypt by crossing the Red Sea, and he then led them through the wilderness for 40 years, whereas God's mediator, he delivered the Ten Commandments, and he brought them to the precipice of entering the Promised Land, where Moses died at the age of 120. And I think we'll find that this story is filled with valuable applications regarding trusting and obeying God. And there are several important uh, events to focus on to both understand why Moses was a hero of the faith and also, and more importantly, how do those events impact our walk with Christ today? Throughout these texts, we will see that when we look at Moses, we are looking at a shadow of a better and greater Moses, Jesus Christ. God's redemption of the heroes of the Hebrews from Egypt and their 40-year journey to the promised land is a foreshadowing of God's redemptive plan for the world accomplished through Jesus' life and ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. 
So this morning we are going to consider three main events. First is God's appearance to Moses as a burning bush. Second, how God through Moses interacted with Pharaoh and the ten plagues that God brought down onto the Egyptians. And then third, uh, the tenth and final plague, which became the first Passover. So what is the context for studying the life of Moses? You might first ask, why were the Hebrews in Egypt to begin with? Well, the Hebrews were the extended family of Joseph, who became a slave in Egypt and was eventually elevated to Pharaoh to a high position in the government. Joseph's family in Canaan were being threatened, so Pharaoh invited the family to come to Egypt and live in a choice region called Goshen. And over the next 400 years, that small group of 70 people grew to a Hebrew nation of approximately 2 million. And at some point, long after Joseph had passed, a new king arose in Egypt, and the Israelites were forced into slavery and hard labor, and that remained their condition for several hundred more years. And to add to the Hebrews' plight, at one point, perhaps around 300-plus years of their living in Egypt, Pharaoh became concerned about the size of the Hebrew nation, thought they might become a threat to his reign, So he implemented a decree that all Hebrew newborn males were to be murdered. And this heinous decree aroused the Hebrews to begin crying out to God to deliver them from their bondage. And it was during this time that Moses was born. His mother, Jochebed, hid him for three months, and yet she knew she could not continue to shelter him, so she prepared a basket and strategically floated it in the Nile so that the basket would be seen by Pharaoh's daughter as she bathed in the Nile. Subsequently, Pharaoh's daughter raised Moses as her son. And therefore, although born a Hebrew, Moses grew up in and was educated in Pharaoh's palace, and he learned all of the Egyptian customs and laws. I want to pause here to talk for a moment about deliverance. You know, when Noah built the ark, all the world was evil, and God delivered Noah's family. The Hebrew word that is used for the ark was teva, and Noah was protected in the teva for 40 days and nights. And when Moses' mother, Jochebed, built a basket for Moses to float on in the Nile, The Hebrew word used for the basket was teva, the same as was used for Noah's ark. So Moses was protected in his ark in the teva and later delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And this deliverance was a foreshadowing of the deliverance that we receive when we are in Christ. Romans 8.1 says, so now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus' blood makes a watertight promise of God that no flood, no fire, or even death itself can ever separate us from God. And the symbolism of the ark is not hard to see, and it serves as a good reminder that Jesus himself became our covering, our protector, our deliverer. So as believers then... Jesus is our Teva. You know, when Moses was 40 years old, while walking among the Hebrews, he observed an Egyptian overseer beating a Hebrew slave. Moses had a strong sense of justice and interceded, striking and killing the Egyptian. The next day, when Moses realized the event had been witnessed, he fled for his life to the Midian desert where he spent the next 40 years as a shepherd. In Midian, Moses married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. He fathered two sons, and for 40 years, Moses was a shepherd for his father-in-law's Jethro's flocks. Now, Jethro was a Midianite priest, and there is an obvious question here about which religion did Jethro follow? Well, incredibly, he was a fellow descendant of Abraham. 
After Sarah died, Abraham had married Keturah, who bore six sons, one of whom, of which was Midian. And this is in Genesis 25. And Jethro was not only a distant relative of Moses, but also seems to have continued worshiping the one true God of Abraham. Exodus 18, verse 9 reads, Jethro was delighted when he heard about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel as he rescued them from the land of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro said, and he brought burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. So it seems then that Jethro was related to Moses both through blood and through shared faith in God. So when Moses fled Egypt to Midian, God had prepared the way for him to become part of Jethro's family. God knew Moses would be protected there and obviously would learn about him. Perhaps Jethro's faithfulness to Abraham's God and his actions supporting Moses' role in serving God is why Jethro is also referred to in Exodus 2 as Ruel, which means friend of God. So Moses had lived 40 years in Pharaoh's palace, and then he lived in the Midian desert for 40 years. What do you think those 40 years were like for him? God was in control. God had a plan for Moses, yet Moses needed to be humbled, to be crushed. The deliverance of God's people would not be accomplished by Moses' strength, but by the strength of Almighty God, and it is realistic to believe that God did his most profound work in Moses' life in the Midian Desert. And isn't that where God does his great work on us as well? Like us, when we are in a desert in our lives, Moses probably questioned everything about his life. And I am too familiar, and you may be as well, with the questions Moses, Moses likely asked of God. Why am I here? How long will I be here? And how do I get out of here? Time for a water break. We're in the desert, right? Need some water. Okay, so this brings us to the point in Moses' life where God calls on him to deliver the Hebrews out of Egypt. So reading from Exodus 2, beginning in verse 23, it reads, But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. So for almost 400 years, the Hebrews have lived in Egypt, and yet they have not entirely lost their faith. They are crying out to the God of Abraham, and it is important for us to notice here that God heard their cries, their groanings, their prayers. And we learn right at the beginning of this story that God is faithful. He has not, and he does not forget his people. So let's pick it up here. We're going to read through some verses here uh, in Exodus 3, beginning in verse 1. So one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
And then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. And yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God. Who am I? To appear before Pharaoh. Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God answered, and he gives us the same answer. I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, well, what is his name? And then what should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So can you imagine being Moses here? I mean, how do you react when God speaks to you from a burning bush? No? Anyone have that experience? No? Just wait. Well, Moses' reaction was to tell God all the reasons that he was not qualified for the task that God was calling him to do. Moses first replied, who am I? to appear before Pharaoh. Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Let's remember, we are looking at the man who many consider the greatest in the Old Testament, and yet in this part of the story, he appears timid and weak and even fearful. In Moses' immediate reaction was to consider his own doubts and inadequacies, and having been a lowly shepherd for 40 years, he likely considered himself a nobody. A total of four times Moses presented arguments to God on why he was not the right person. So let's take a step back here. Unbeknownst to Moses, God had been preparing him all of his life for just this moment. Moses was miraculously saved from the Nile River as a baby. He was raised in Pharaoh's court. He knew all the ways and means of the Egyptian culture and politics, and at the age of 40, as a virile, courageous man, he had demonstrated his sense of justice when he defended a Hebrew slave being beaten. Yet now, his 40 years as a shepherd in the Midian desert had left him a humble, weathered, tired 80-year-old man who was a mere shadow of his former courageous, virile, masculine self. In other words, out in the Midian desert, he considered himself a nobody, and so he responds to God, who am I to confront Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? In an Egyptian culture, sheep herders were considered scum, the lowest in society. So think about the situation. Moses is frail and weathered, a lowly shepherd being asked by God to stand in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at the time, and demand that Pharaoh release two million Israelites from bondage. Though in other words, Moses was right where God wanted him. You see, the Bible is full of stories where God uses the humble and the meek God chose David, a mere boy, to slay the giant Goliath. God chose the very meek Gideon who led 300 warriors to defeat thousands of Midianites. And Jesus' disciples were fishermen and tax collectors and journeymen. Many of you probably watched the movie many years ago, 
The Ten Commandments were the director, Cecil B. DeMille, cast Charlton Heston as Moses. He was dashing and strong-willed and muscular and full of bravado. But in reality, God would have had no use for Charlton Heston. God demonstrates his power through our weakness. God cannot work through those who believe they do not need God. And the world is full of people who trust in their own abilities and not in God's ability to work through them. And that is one reason that humility is such an important characteristic in our walk with God. The only possible way for Moses to succeed in this task is God's mighty hand working through him to accomplish his purpose. God wanted a man of humility, a nobody, and Moses was perfectly suited to the task. If you fast forward a few, a few books, Numbers 12, verse 3 says, Now Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. It's got to be pretty humble. So in our culture, we often say about someone who has achieved fame or wealth, so-and-so has been very successful. But successful at what? At what the world offers? You know, we often give others advice. Follow your dreams. Is that really good advice? Could Moses have ever dreamed how God would use him in his life? What about the Pharisee Saul before he became the Apostle Paul? Could Saul have ever dreamed how God would use him in his life? You know, one of the big takeaways from Moses' life is as Christians... We should define success as whether we are, whether or not we are answering God's call on our life. How many of you have been confronted with a burning bush in your life? Essentially, God is speaking to you and asking you to do something for him. And how have you responded? Often our first reaction, as it was with Moses, is to say, who am I to do this? And then we fill in the blank with all the reasons that we cannot do the task that God is calling us to do. Just as Moses did, we question God's choice. The God of the universe has spoken to us to do a certain task, and we question his judgment. Yet the lesson that plays out in Exodus is the same one that will play out in your life when you say, yes, here I am to God. Whatever God calls us to do, he assumes full responsibility. He will equip, enable, and supply us with everything that we need to obey him. The task may seem beyond our abilities, and perhaps we cannot comprehend how he could ever use us. But if the Lord has commanded it, he will make it possible. The responsibility God entrusted to Moses seemed insurmountable from a human standpoint. Pharaoh was the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, but God's promises to Moses were mightier than any earthly strength or authority. And once Moses accepted God's call on his life, he then fully trusted God. And as the story progresses, the more Moses obeyed God, the more his trust grew. We learn here that nothing is impossible with God. Whatever he commands us to do, he will be faithful to empower us and every promise he makes is true and cannot fail. In knowing this, we should be eager to obey, even if it seems impossible from a human perspective. God is able to accomplish his will in and through us as we submit and obey. And there is no greater example in the Bible than the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Pharaoh seemed to have all the power while Moses had none, but Pharaoh and his army were no match for God. God used Moses to accomplish his purpose of bringing down that powerful nation, rescuing his people. What can we learn from Moses' example? Well, Pastor John Knox said, one man plus God equals a majority. And we can add one man plus God equals victory. In God's view, no one is a nobody. 
But if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling like Moses did as a sheep herder for 40 years in the Midian desert, a nobody, and then God is looking right at you. You are right where God wants you just as Moses was right where God wanted him. You see, when a nobody answers God's calling on their life, the result points to it must be God. Who we are is irrelevant. God promises to be with us, whatever the task, whatever the circumstance. And the great pastor Andrew Murray said, God is willing to assume full responsibility for a life fully committed to him. Moses was living a comfortable life at 80 years of age. Yet he not only answered God's call, he radically changed the trajectory of his life. He did something he never could have imagined. And maybe God wants to change the trajectory of your life. So if this morning you have a burning bush in your life, God's persistent voice in your ear that will not leave you and maybe has been with you for a while, remember this as you consider responding to God's call on your life. And I'm going to say this in the first person, and you note takers, you probably heard this before, but you might want to be sure to write this down. The will of God will never take me where the grace of God will not keep me. The will of God will never take me where the grace of God will not keep me. Trust in God. Be obedient to his calling on your life. Have the courage to step out in faith, fully trusting, fully knowing that God is with you. So after gaining Moses' uh, attention with the burning bush, then God gave Moses a personal message from Exodus 4, verse 21. And the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will refuse to let the people go. And so what we see here is God's purpose was not only to rescue the Hebrews, but in the process, he was going to use Pharaoh's hard heart to bring the entire nation of Egypt into subjection so that they would know that he was the one true God. So Moses was obedient to God, and he and his brother Aaron went back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. And I do not think there's a more perfect passage in the Bible for what happens next than 1 Peter 5, verse 6. It says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. And indeed, Moses was lifted up in honor. So God intended to harden Pharaoh's heart, knowing he would not submit to releasing the Israelites until after the tenth and final plague. It's not difficult to understand really why God devastated Egypt with these plagues. They had enslaved God's chosen people and imposed hard labor on them for centuries. And when the Lord repeatedly sent Moses to Pharaoh with the same message, let my people go, Pharaoh kept refusing. And Pharaoh's heart grew harder each time. And there was no way he was going to willingly let the enslaved Hebrews walk away. Therefore, God compelled him by sending ten plagues. And it's important to note that although initially reluctant, once Moses answered God's call on his life, he trusted God completely and grew in faith and grew in courage. His steadfast leadership enabled him to become the leader of the Hebrew nation as he led them out of Egypt to freedom. Now, the Egyptians worshipped numerous gods, in fact, over a hundred. They represented every aspect of life, especially nature and living creatures. And God was intentional with these plagues to target all of what you might call the protector gods uh, that the Egyptians worshipped. So one by one, God decimated their highest, most powerful gods. And yet Pharaoh resisted and would not release the Israelites from bondage. And Pharaoh himself was considered a god by the Egyptians. Yet he too would be shown to be powerless. God demonstrated through these plagues that all the Egyptian gods were powerless 
and worthless. And these guys were supposed to protect them, and they all failed. And these 10 plagues covered a period of less than six months, and some scholars think they happened in as short a time as 40 days. So let's just briefly look at these plagues as described in Exodus 7 through 10. First, the Lord turned all the water in the Nile River to blood, and then frogs covered the land, and next, gnats covered the entire land of Egypt, and then swarms of insects filled the houses and covered the ground, and then pestilence came, and then painful boils of man and beast, and then hail that destroyed the crops and trees, and then locusts covered all the land of Egypt. And after these first eight plagues, there was nothing green left in the land of Egypt. And then the ninth plague rendered Amen-Ra, who was the god of creation, the sun god, and the king of all other Egyptian gods, worthless. For three days there was a thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt, and life came to a standstill, except where the Israelites lived. None of these plagues affected where the Israelites lived. So in these first nine plagues, God had destroyed all the Egyptian gods so that the Egyptians would know him as the one true God. And the stage had now been set for the tenth and final plague that would finally liberate the Israelites, allowing them to form as a nation through which God would later bring Jesus, the Messiah. So as we come to the tenth and final plague, it is important for us to recognize that there are many events in the story of Moses that point to Jesus, but none more so than what happened in the 10th plague. God informs Moses that the firstborn males in all Egypt will be killed. And Moses would have remembered this because God had previously told Moses in Exodus 4, verse 22, then you will tell Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. So God is now delivering justice to the Egyptians who had not only enslaved the Israelites, they had also implemented a decree to kill all male Israelite babies. So we're going to read a little bit of this story beginning in uh, Exodus 11, verse 1. So then the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. And after that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you, he will force you all to leave. Tell all the Israelite men and women to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. So Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt and from the oldest son of Pharaoh to the oldest son of the lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. And then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has ever heard or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites, it would be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And all the officials of Egypt will run to me and fall to the ground before me. Please leave, they will beg. Hurry and take all of your followers with you. Only then will I go. And then, burning with anger, Moses left Pharaoh. So with the tenth plague, God poured out judgment throughout the land of Egypt to kill every firstborn person an animal. However, God made a provision to protect his people. Moses told the Hebrews to select a lamb for each household or for two smaller households. And God's instructions, which Moses delivered, were very detailed and were to be followed exactly. And what follows is the very first Passover, which is still celebrated by the Jews today, almost 3,000 years later from this first occurrence. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading again, but I'm going to do some paraphrasing, kind of skipping through some of these chapters as we read about the Passover from Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1. So while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, on this month will be the first month of the year 
for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. And now in verse 5, the animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. And take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. And then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. And now in verse 11, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. And in verse 12, on that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a, fest as a special festival to the Lord. And this is a law for all time. And so all the Israelites followed these instructions. And when the angel of death came across Egypt, the Israelites were spared. And after the angel had passed over all of Egypt, in verse 31, it says, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out, leave my people, and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. And now in verse 40, the people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. And in verse 42, it says, On this night the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. So this night belongs to him, and it must be commemorated every year by all the Israelites from generation to generation. Now, all of these events have a direct connection to Jesus. All the unblemished lambs were to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. Each lamb was to be an unblemished year-old male sheep or goat, meaning they were in the prime of their life. They were to keep the lamb until the 14th day of the same month. And then at twilight, the whole assembly of Israel was to kill the lambs. And its blood was to be put on the doorpost and lintel of the houses in which the lamb was to be eaten. And the Lord explained that this was his Passover. So now let's fast forward over 800 years. It's Palm Sunday. And Jesus is riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And in five days, he will be crucified on the cross. He is the unblemished, perfect lamb of God. He will enjoy his last meal, the Passover meal, in four days. And then he will be crucified and his blood will wash over all sinners who believe in him and give their lives to him. So today, when we stand before God on judgment day, he will see the blood of Jesus over us and judgment will pass over us. And the salvation of the Israelites by putting the blood of a perfect lamb over their doorstep was a foreshadowing of the salvation that we have received through the blood of Christ at Calvary. And what we see here is God is bringing forth salvation, and yes, it includes a horrific moment of judgment. But without a substitute, there would be certain destruction. Applying of the blood was an act of pure faith. By faith, the Hebrews did what God said because they trusted God, and that is the essence of salvation. To, be to believe means that you don't have all the answers, but you are trusting God. And how foolish did that look to the Egyptians walking by the Israelite homes and seeing blood? They must have laughed at them. Just as many people scorn Christians today and refer to our beliefs as a Christian fairy tale. And each Israelite family had, decide in their, had to decide in their own home, will we apply the blood or not? Just as we must decide on our own to accept Christ 
as our Savior. We can go back to Genesis 22 when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And yet God provided a ram in the thicket as a substitution. And now for implementing judgment for the sins of the nation of Egypt, God is offering us salvation through the substitution of a perfect lamb. And this too is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, substituting himself on the cross in our place. Yet I found there's one more amazing connection here. Some biblical scholars have determined that going back to that first Passover in Egypt at the actual calendar day of the Israelites' lamb selection day in Egypt was identical to the calendar of the first Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And the actual day of the Israelite Passover dinner is the same evening as Jesus' Passover dinner with his disciples. And the next day, Friday, the Israelites were given their freedom from the bondage of slavery just as we on Friday of Passover week were given our freedom from the bondage of sin and death through Jesus' death on the cross. So God planned the entire interaction between Moses and Pharaoh to end with a direct connection to the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who one day would deliver us from the bondage of sin and death. And God told the Israelites in Exodus 12, verse 14, this is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. And to this day, the Jewish nation celebrates this first Passover to remember their deliverance from slavery, just as we remember and celebrate our deliverance from sin and death through Jesus' death and resurrection at Easter. Moses told the Hebrews, you will be ruined. You'll be destroyed if you don't apply the blood. And Jesus preached that he was the substitute and the only people who would be saved from the coming judgment of God would be those who were covered in his blood. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the perfect sacrifice. And it is by God's grace and mercy that we have an opportunity to be in his presence forever because he became our substitute. And then finally, on Sunday morning of that week, Jesus' resurrection gave mankind a path to heaven, just as the exodus from Egypt gave the Hebrews a path to their land of milk and honey, which we will explore next week. Must still be in the desert. So four times in Exodus 13, the salvation of the Israelites is attributed to the powerful hand of the Lord. And the same is true of our salvation today. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ who offered himself as the final Passover lamb to free us from the sin that enslaves us. Acts 4.12 said, there is no salvation in anyone else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And in the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh seemed to have all the power while Moses had nothing. But in reality, Pharaoh and his army were no match for Moses who had Almighty God, his words, and his promises. God used Moses to accomplish his purpose of bringing down that powerful nation and rescuing his people. And although Pharaoh had left the Israelites leave Egypt after the 10th plague, shortly afterward he regretted his decision, assembled his army, and set out to bring them back. And that is where we'll pick up our story next week with Moses. So today we have seen that Moses exhibits humility, surrender, faith, trust, and courage. The connections to Jesus throughout the life of Moses and the Exodus story are profound, and we will continue to make these connections next week when we conclude our discussion of Moses as a hero of the faith. But in closing this morning, we have seen that there were many Egyptian gods, 
And the truth is that in this world, we too are confronted with false idols. These are anathema to God, just as the Egyptian gods were 3,000 years ago. And like those gods, he desires to obliterate these things from our lives. In order to do so, we must cooperate with him. He needs obedient followers. He needs faithful followers. He needs trusting followers. And he needs courageous followers, just like Moses and the other heroes of the faith that we have been studying. We need thousands of modern-day heroes of the faith to bring God's values back into society and turn the tide of the precipitous decline of Christian believers in America. In the same way as the Israelites in Moses' day, aren't we crying out to God today to deliver us? Do we relate to and feel a similar despair in our American culture today? Aren't we on our knees praying for God's intervention? God is just and God is faithful. And just as with the Israelites, God will hear the prayers of a faithful people. So we must ask, do we have the courage of Moses as a church to stand for Christ in today's culture? As it was with Moses, maybe our burning bush as we are being called by God to stand in the gap between good and evil. And to do so, we must be obedient, we must be faithful, we must have unwavering trust, and we must be courageous. Those are the characteristics that exemplify these heroes of the faith that we are studying, and those are the characteristics that we need in modern-day heroes of the faith, people who will answer God's call on their life and go forward. In Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, it reads, God made the following promise, promises to the Israelites, and he makes those same promises to us today. I therefore say to the people of Israel, and I think we could substitute America for Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression, and I will rescue you from your slavery. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from your oppression. So we learn in the story of Moses that nothing is impossible with God. By seeing how the Lord interacted with Moses, we can gain a better understanding of how we are to listen to God speaking to us through his word. The Lord wants us to give him our full attention and understand what he is saying. And if we cooperate in this process we can be confident that he will guide us through life. After hearing the Lord's command, Moses initially objected, saying, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And who am I that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? All he could see were the obstacles to obeying God. And the reality is that we can all be heroes of the faith by being godly fathers, godly mothers, godly friends, by standing for truth and against untruth in whatever circumstance that we have been placed in this life, by yielding to God's leading, being willing to say yes, by walking through the open doors that God brings into our life, by trusting in the Lord. God assured Moses in Exodus 3, I will be with you. And today God promises to be with us. Whatever your circumstances are today, God will use them for something good in your life. And if you consider the possibility that your personal weaknesses may be the very key to your usefulness in God's hands, humility shows up when I accept the truth that I am nothing without what God has done. We need to recognize that God's plan may very well involve continuing to do what we're already doing to his glory. Wherever God has placed you, respond today in obedience to his foreordained purposes. So we can't all be a Moses. And as I think about our congregation here at Renew, and as I look across the congregation this morning, I see many faces of those who are heroes of the faith. Just like Moses, when God called on your life, you moved from who am I to here I am. Who are these moms that are raising godly children? Who are these men and women who stand for God's truth 
in the workplace? Who are our high school and college students who stand for Christ in secular schools and universities? Who is Leah to share Jesus in Africa? Who are the Grovers whose Cambodia ministry has brought thousands to Christ? Who are the Benedicts and now the Ramis to lead our youth ministry? Who are our ministry leaders to lead others at Renew? Who are you that volunteer at the Pregnancy Center, at Gospel Mission, at Ninth Street Ministry, in Prison Ministry, with Eighth Street Ministry, with Love Life Ministry, with Teen Challenge? Who are Chris and Sharice to lead worship? Who is Natalie to lead our children's ministry? And who is Dallas to lead Renew Church? Who are they? They have all accepted God's calling on their life and in the circumstances that God has brought them into, they are heroes of the faith. Obedient, faithful, trusting in the Lord and courageous to move as Moses did from who am I to here I am. So I'm going to close with this Charles Spurgeon quote. He said, stand still. Keep the posture of an upright man, ready for action, expecting further orders, cheerfully and patiently awaiting the directing voice, and it will not be long ere God shall say to you as distinctly as Moses said it to the people of Israel, go forward. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before your presence today, our hearts are just filled with gratitude. Your word reminds us of the eternal nature of your love and the wisdom that flows from your divine hand. Lord, your presence is our refuge and strength. And during life's uncertainties, you remain our constant source of security and hope. Your eternal nature reassures us that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We find peace in your unchanging character, knowing that your love and promises are secure. Help us to have the courage to answer your calling on our lives, to go forward confident that you are with us. And thank you, Father, for your word that guides and uplifts us and we lift up this prayer in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.